0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us.
0: Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago.
1: Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis.
0: Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. In the midst of everything that's happening all around us in the United States right now, it's really easy to lose sight about what's happening across the globe. And while often only in our periphery, other countries are really struggling quite mightily. And unfortunately, there's hardly any other place in the world that has borne such a disproportionate burden of misfortune. Felt most acutely right now during the pandemic. Um, I was listening to another podcast the other day and someone said that the country of Haiti is a place where every disaster is possible. And as the world is rapidly changing, it seems that there's one crisis after another in Haiti um, with a recent natural disaster and an earthquake, uh, a storm that followed right after that hindered rescue efforts. And then just last month in July, a presidential assassination. So that's all within the last six weeks or so. So in addition to the political turmoil and the public health challenges that Haiti faces, we know that this is something that's in our proverbial backyard. So we thought it would be a really great idea to bring in an expert who's doing work in Haiti and has done a great deal of nutrition work there, and as well as other contracts such as Ecuador and East Africa for many years. So we're really delighted to have Dr. Laura Iannotti, an Associate Professor of Public Health at the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. She's an expert in maternal and young child nutrition and nutritional deficiencies, especially those related to poverty and infectious disease. Dr. Ayanadi directs the E3 Nutrition Lab, which works to identify economically affordable, environmentally sustainable, and evolutionarily appropriate nutrition solutions globally. So thanks a lot for joining us, Dr. Ayanadi, and welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, and it's a real pleasure to
0: join this podcast today. Yeah, definitely. I feel like we focus so much on Domestic things. It's, it's so nice to get a global health perspective, and we are not experts in this space by any means. So I think we'll have a fun conversation and just learn a lot today. Um, I guess to get us started, could you talk about how you first became interested in doing work in Haiti? Kind of what got you there? Um, I'm sure for the students who are interested in global health, like I'm, sure, I'm, 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 imagine that they're curious. Like, how is it that I get started in a context that be I'm new to, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a, a great question to start with. Um, I actually took my first trip to Haiti in 1990. So this has been now- A long some, time. <laughs> a long time um, that I've been working there. And, and truthfully, that first trip set the course of, you know, continuing to go to Haiti for, for all of those years. I haven't really stopped going back to the country. Um, I initially went because I was interested in, in sort of global work. Um, I had studied French. So knowing that they have French as their second language, um, that was a, a motivator. And also that you know, it wasn't too far. It was still in this hemisphere, um, as Daryl said, but, but also um, a country where there was already a very clear, present need for people um, to be supporting it. So that was, that was the initial motivation um, for doing the work. But then, you know, once I, I went the first time and worked in an orphanage and taught sports and did, you know, the usual sort of NGO type work, but I became interested in, in larger development questions and ultimately ended up doing work in nutrition and development um, in the country, working closely in, in partnership. Um, but the final thing I'll say about... Haiti, um, although, as, as Daryl said, you know, we want to we touch on some of the um, humanitarian and natural disasters that have barraged the country over the years, I also want to ensure that um, we talk about the, the beauty and resiliency of the country, um, which i often forgotten, um, have some of the, the most extraordinary art, um, religion, mm tradition and voodoo and um, and culture frankly uh, and some of that gets lost in the hmm. of, of the trauma and the um, sure. disasters that have been imposed on the country
1: Oh, sure yeah thanks for bringing that perspective and, and that's why we wanted to hear from you and and to highlight some of the things the nuances that are not widely known and so as you mentioned there's there's a lot going on there both contemporarily and historically. And many of our, our listeners, like us, um, have not known very much about the history or the challenges that Haiti has faced, either historically or in recent years. So I was wondering if you could provide a little bit of a, a overview for just contextualizing the, the crises that Haiti is facing, especially the political turmoil and um, and. You know, obviously, you can't control natural disasters, but with the lack of um, sort of the the public health infrastructure there, um, how that's that's working, what's what's happening there?
2: Yeah. So, I think even to start that conversation, I'd like to start with um, the remarkable history um, that Haiti has, um, that has unfortunately deteriorated into some of these these um, circumstances. But the history um, is is Intimately linked to our own, and and people don't always realize that. So, you know, 1791, I believe, um, the enslaved people of Haiti uh, revolted, and and this was one of the first um, and only populations of slaves that did this, and they did it successfully. Um, and so, by 1804, it was the first black independent nation in the world, um, and that is a proud history from my point of view, yeah. um, and. And part of that, though, this is the kind of interesting uh, fact, is that so Napoleon um, sent troops to try to over, you know, to overtake the slaves and to mm. bring back the country and the colony to France. To France. Right. it was actually one of the wealthiest colonies, um, mm. in the world, and the French mm. country, in the world built on the sugar industry and um, mm. and other crops. But what's What's interesting is that the slaves, um, he failed. So N- Napoleon ultimately capitulated to um, the Haitians. They renamed the country Haiti, which is actually an originally an indigenous name. Um, and because of that, Napoleon was like, well, I think I'm just going to sell Louisiana territory. I really don't want any more troubles with slavery. I really don't want this territory. So we ended up, the U.S. ended up, acquiring um, the Louisiana Purchase, mm-hmm. um, many people would say as a direct result of, of what mm. happened in, in Haiti, not to mention inspiration that many um, Black Southerners derived from that um, revolt and independence. There's, there's really a proud history, but the sad part is that it didn't go well after that. Mm. So after, after the independence, the U.S. didn't recognize Haiti for many years. Um, and France imposed you know, a lot of debt on Haiti. There was um, years of, of military occupation. We occupied Haiti from 1915, uh, I think, to 1934. Um, there was a lot of political strife. We had the du- Duvalier regime, um, regimes, both of them, um, leading up to the present, which is, as Daryl referred to, there's been um, very recent political insurrection and strife in the country um, that has ultimately led to the assassination of the president. So um, some years, a few years ago, there was what was called pay lock. And this was um, people within Haiti uh, um, opposing um, some of the policies of President Moise. And this put the country in lockdown. This was even before COVID. Mm. So this continued to perpetuate the the entrenched poverty that we have in Haiti that people weren't able to go and sell in the markets. And anyway, so the problems with President Moise started um, a few years ago. Um, And then, as you said, in July, he was assassinated. And this has only caused more instability in the country. Of course, overlaid with that, then you've got um, you know, the natural disasters and the public health crises that have also confronted the country. So 2010 was the earthquake. Um, same fault line, uh, the, the most recent um, earthquake occurred on that same fault line. I happen to have been there in the 2010 earthquake, which was not very far from the epicenter. So had um, a sad and very tangible, uh, reality around what that looks like in the country. So people are continuing to struggle. Um, and we're hearing about it. They're handling it, I would say in a much better way than the 2010 earthquake. Um, but still people are really suffering at the moment. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I know I studied a little bit of Latin America and, um, you know, and I do work on structural racism. So when I think about Haiti and I know like the history is like one of the first, like, the, you know, in, um, the, the slave revolt and became its own nation, I often think about, like, is there something about race happening with development, right? Like, are they playing this sort of like structural colonialist legacy, right? Where like, they've never quite gotten the US or French, um, you know, foot off their necks in terms of being able to be truly independent, truly sustainable, like governed, right, like without all of this foreign intervention that is now sort of like benevolent foreign intervention, but like, you know, we can unpack that a little bit, which I'm sure we will, but it's like, where would Haiti have been if like sort of it was able to develop in the same way that the U.S. was able to develop, right, like, you know the exactly. case of um all you know we have example of example like in the global south you know countries in central america latin america who were also like experienced sort of like long arm of colonialism that affects it to today right and so um just No that's about absolutely that
2: yeah that's absolutely accurate i think Haiti is in this funny unfortunate place where you know, because of language, because of cultural differences, they're not really part of, like you were saying, the sort of the Latin American um, community, they're also not really part of the Sub-Saharan African communities, Mm. it's funny, weird place. And then there are remnants, I would say, of that sort of colonial heritage, maybe not as strong as I see in in countries in Africa, Um, but in Haiti. You have um, something that I like to refer to as an NGO occupation, mm-hmm. where you've got, you know, as Daryl was sent some of these questions in advance and um, was asking about the aid state. And I think the NGO occupation has perpetuated some of these problems as well, because there's a dependency that has been built up around um, the occupation of these outside NGOs. Um, without commensurate investments in the public sector, right? I think that the answer lies um, where we need to really build up the infrastructure um, to get Haiti back on track, rather than this sort of outside people coming in, not really knowing very well the context or the culture or the needs. Frankly, right, right. right. Um, yeah. So that's that's part of I think part of the problem in, in what you're referring to, Arisha.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about, especially <laughs> since you've got this outstanding lived experience on the ground there, and you probably know a, a great deal about what those needs might be. So, you know, I think there's obviously, as I mentioned in in the questions, there's this, this sort of aid dependency that's occurred. Um, and, you know, all the things that happen with that mismanagement of funds and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I'm kind of curious about from your perspective, what are some of the the key areas that if you had all the money and resources that you can direct and marshal, um, what would you say are some of the key things that you would like to see invested to, to you know, to foster the resiliency and the pride that you do see there?
2: I mean, I think maybe to start would be what I mentioned, which is investments in the public sector. So the Ministry of Health is the the partner institution that we work most closely with. And they've got the the leadership, they have some extraordinary leadership within that, but they don't have resources. Mm. Resources tend to be um, spread out to these um, private NGO, non-governmental organizations. So I would say investing in that is important. Um, Secondarily, um, education. So there's a very, very small slice of the population that gets to go on for higher education. Um, As you know, Daryl, we've started this um, undergraduate degree program in public health. It's the first degree program ever in the country for public health undergrad degree program. Um, And yet Haiti is experiencing some of the worst public health problems Hemisphere, um, and they don't have any higher education programs built around that. Um, they have some strong universities, but I think this is another place where we can mm. invest, and and that starts, you know, at the primary, secondary, up through higher education. Um, there's a there's a lot of individuals in the middle class, I would say, who really want this place to succeed. Mm. Um, and over the years, I've become very committed to helping them and supporting them um, in their leadership and in, in bringing the country forward. So yeah. those those are two areas where I think I'd I'd really, I'd really focus. Um, yeah. Not you know. Then of course, there's always economic development. I would reduce the debt. I would invest in you know small entrepreneurs, um, which happen to be mostly women mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the country there's a lot of those kinds of investments too, I think we could make to build up, to, to bring Haiti back to where it needs to be and should be. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, we often have this conversation in public health, right? Like what are ameliorative versus sort of fundamental interventions that need to happen? And I think, I feel like we're having a lot of that conversation here in the U.S., thinking about health and what really moves the needle on health. And do you feel like the kind of development, global aid, global health community is also sort of having that conversation around, you know, what are actual like things that are going to move the needle as opposed to things that maybe we've been doing, you know, like the healthy, I mean, mine is always like the healthy eating workshop, right? Like it's not going to really get people to eat better, right? Uh, What is actually more fundamental? um, Do you feel like that parallel is happening kind of within the space that you sit? So can you
2: maybe rephrase the question for me so I understand? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That was all (laughs) over the place. So, So I guess like in the health disparities, health education, at least in the US side, we've been having this long, it feels like forever from when we started, but really it's coming to the fore about you know the conversation around social determinants like if yeah. we're going to invest mm-hmm. or we're going to de- design public health interventions are we going to do the like condom on the banana workshop or the health education healthy eating workshop or the like walk for 30 minutes a day or are we going to do some of these things like more fundamental um, um structural interventions Um, that address these upstream factors. That's really happening, I feel like in the domestic space. Do you feel like that same conversation has been happening or is happening kind of in the global health space thinking about investment in intervention? You know, we're not just gonna do the like, I don't know. I don't even know what the intervention is like. We're not just gonna Mm -hmm. like go dig a well, right? It's like, oh, we're actually gonna build up a larger infrastructure around water treatment or whatever.
2: Yeah, right. No, I certainly think those conversations and approaches are taken in the global health sphere. Um, what I think, you know, doesn't always happen is that those sectors maybe don't always talk to one another, mm-hmm. and always integrate and work closely together. So, an example might be from my own discipline, which is in public health nutrition, um, where we talk about. Um, Nutrition sensitive—it's an awful term—but nutrition sensitive versus nutrition specific interventions. So the nutrition specific being what you were saying—it's sort of direct intervention, you know, supplements or um, workshops or behavior change. Whereas nutrition sensitive are more along the lines of the social, economic, political determinants. Mm.
1: Of,
2: and those two types of approaches aren't always linked. So if we say in Haiti that okay, well, a project that we've got going on right now is to improve young child nutrition through eggs um, because we had some success in Ecuador where children grew better, um, giving one egg per day early in infancy. But in Haiti, we're having a hard time finding the eggs. Mm, mm-hmm. there, we've got to start with, with agriculture production, mm. all livestock production. And we have to think about you know those poverty determinants too so once this research ends can people afford to buy the eggs to ensure that the kids will continue to get the eggs so i i think that those conversations are certainly the dialogues have been had in global health um, and people understand how important social economic determinants are for health, I just don't know that we have figured it out and linked the two um, ways. Yeah.
0: To be fair, yeah. I don't think we have either. We're just talking about yeah. it a lot, but we haven't <laughs> yeah. figured it out yeah. by yeah. any means. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I was going to say we certainly have not not figured it out here, um, and certainly not a model of what to do across the world right. for for how to address those those underlying fundamental determinants of health. Right. Um, and Laura, you mentioned, um, you know, the, these differences between, you know, different types of nutrition intervention. And I really appreciate mm. the work that you do in terms of the emphasis on sustainable solutions and interventions. And um, I'm kind of curious about, you know, what are you doing? And you have this, this new center, E3 Center. Um, you know, what are some of the, the kind of key contributions and that you all are trying to make there um, with with that type of work?
2: Yeah, so as you mentioned in the beginning, um, Daryl, the three E's stand for sort of the principles that we're aspiring to for developing the interventions that we test. So each of the E's are, um, the first E is equity, so equitable access to food. And this really has to do with poverty and how people Mm can't access high quality foods. It's true in the US, it's true um, in in Haiti and places that I work. So equity is the first E. The second E is environmentally sustainable. So the research that we're doing around that is to think about, well, how do we encourage consumption of foods that might not be perceived to be environmentally sustainable like animal source foods we're working Mm. on, um, but we do it in an environmentally sustainable way. So that example comes from the Kenya research where we're working in marine fisheries and we're encouraging consumption of food, of fish that are plentiful in the environment. Um, we're giving out a trap that has escape doors so that fish, the juvenile fish can escape and the fish can grow long just like the children are gonna grow long. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, and then the third E, which I noticed that you were questioning um, as well, which is the evolutionarily appropriate, And that is an attempt for those of us in nutrition to look back in time and understand that at critical junctures in our evolution, in particular around the time of homo erectus is the one that we focus on, where um, the hominid um, species changed physiologically and anatomically. Um, we we suddenly were taller, we were healthy, we had longer lifespans, we actually had much bigger brains. And looking back at the diet in that time period and how that diet has basically been gatherer, hunter, fisher type diet um, for, you know, a large fraction of our evolutionary past um, up until only recently. So that's, that was a span of year for 2 million years, our genome built on this 2 million year time period and that sort of diet and then only in the last 10,000 years have we had agriculture and a lot of cereal and carbohydrate consumption and then in the last 200 years only, tiny, tiny fraction, um, have we had processed foods. So it's a an, it's an principle that we uphold in terms of diet diversity and animal source foods and um fresh foods as opposed to processed foods and that's where that comes from is to be built on that evolutionary past yeah that makes a lot of
1: sense
0: yeah that's very smart it's almost like um well I'm sure right like thinking about like let's not reproduce a problem like let's not create a problem while addressing an issue like another problem Mm -hmm. right so you can think about a lot of I don't know this space, but I could imagine like a lot of like nutrition development was like let's give canned food, right? Like I think about like Indigenous communities here, right? Like canned food or like very processed food. It's gonna meet the nutritional needs, but it creates a bigger problem of like we're not investing in agricultural, you know, sustainability, you know, um, and then it's not just good for our bodies either. And so now we have this like diabetes thing, like all of that is sort of happening. So. It's really yeah. like thoughtful, um, this like segmented way that you all are thinking about this.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, we try to have all three E's kind of infiltrate all of the projects, the research that we do, but some some of the research projects tend to emphasize, you know, one E over the other. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it is all linked. Um, and they're ultra processed foods in particular in Latin America, we should, that's a, it's a huge problem. Um, that's that's you know generating issues of the chronic disease outcomes
0: yeah 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 definitely yeah um I guess I mean Daryl what should we should we think about the last question or do you want to shift to COVID I'm just trying to be mindful of time here
1: yeah sure I was just kind of curious about um so two two questions that that I'm thinking about one is a more broad question the other one is is more specific to COVID so we oftentimes talk about even if you're not a global health researcher in quotation marks you're oftentimes um the good we're in a global community and so the best that best work we can do in one context one space we can often get good results in different spaces so I'm kind of curious you've worked mm-hmm. in a, a lot of different places like Ecuador Kenya obviously Haiti Haiti um I'm wondering if there's you know some key lessons that you've learned over the years in different spaces or even here in the us um, living in st louis in dc baltimore area um, what are some of the things that you've picked up in these different contexts and applied them in different spaces
2: yeah i think that's exactly the right question is context so it doesn't matter within countries right you have these vast differences in culture mm-hmm. Um, you really have to pay very close attention to context. Um, I think that one lesson that we've learned or not really learned, we knew this, um, that you know, is critical for research, those working in, um, well, anywhere really in the world, um, doing formative research pilot studies are essential to figure out what's happening in your context before you design any sort of intervention. Um, so that that's just universal. I think that we have to do that wherever we go and work and do research. Um, I think the other the other lessons I've learned, I mean that there are some things that are, you know, generalizable globally. Um, And the E3 Nutrition Lab tries to do some global policy work and thinking about guideline development and, you know, working with UN agencies right now to think about, well, what are some of those generalizable themes that we see um, in nutrition? Um, But then, you know, what's the the cool thing about that context-specific experience? I think for me, I've... I've loved the global work because of the, the diversity that you see around the mm-hmm. world and knowing that and realizing that no human being and no no human population is perfect right mm-hmm. none none of us. So when we get together with people from different backgrounds and different cultures and societies, you get to see well what what are the good things and what are the bad things and I, those are the conversations I love you know you're mm-hmm and you have some dinners at night and you have these long conversations what are the what are the neat things and what are the not so good things um, in in that context um, and those are some of the great takeaways that I've had I think, in that in that global world um, and I've been very fortunate to have that and we in the e3 nutrition lab um, our partners are, Partners um, and they're considered part of the research team. It's never, um, it's never us going in and saying, "Here's our research, or conduct our research," but rather we have institutions and and people who are part, in partnership with us. So I, one of the terms that I can't stand in in global health world is capacity building because mm-hmm. to me, slightly paternalistic. Mm-hmm. I call it cooperative learning because you're learning together and you're sharing different experiences um, across cultures and, um, and globally. And that, and that's even richer when you're doing it in, in many different places and with diverse array of, of people and yeah, cultures.
1: Yeah, yeah. lots of gems there. Um, yeah. What was that term again? The, the cooperative learning
2: cooperative yeah. learning. I yeah. don't I don't appreciate capacity though because everybody builds each other's capacity.
0: For sure, yeah. that's a good yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's like the fun and like it's I'm sure this is like grueling work, right? But that's the fun part of it cuz you can go into one context and you know, I don't want to romanticize it, but like Poor people are like ingenious and magical. And we figure shit out all the time. Sorry. We figure stuff out all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, someone somewhere has figured out like the eggs, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. Like, let's try this, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. And as poor as there, are I mean, that's actually a really good example that I was thinking about before this um, podcast is, um, okay, so what have I learned from Haiti? Well, I've learned about generosity and community. Mm -hmm. You know, in the United States or in Haiti where you have barely any rice and beans on your table, somebody comes to your door, you still invite them in. They sit mm-hmm. down to dinner with you. Um, and there's that generosity that you don't always see and that community that you don't know. So it doesn't matter, it, it, it's it it's like you said, Daryl, there are gems um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: confined in all contexts, I think, in all populations.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, and obviously, during the pandemic it's hard to talk about health in any way, shape or form without thinking about COVID. And I know you just got back from Kenya and i um, just kind of curious about whether it's in Haiti or Kenya and other places that you're working, you know, what, what's happening with COVID and we have the privilege obviously here, uh, much to the chagrin of many other places around mm-hmm. the world of opting into whether or not we wanna get vaccinated um, and other places that don't have access to the vac- vaccine at all. And so just kind of curious about some of the context, especially in Haiti that's been, as you mentioned, de- dealing with a deluge of, of just constant you know, crisis after crisis. And so kind of curious about what, what it's like there in terms of transmission and efforts to mitigate, as well as um, what the status might be on, on getting access to vaccines in places like that.
2: Yeah, so I, I traveled to Haiti in May um, and at that point, Point in time I wasn't seeing I wasn't seeing COVID and I um I was sure it, it wasn't about a lack of tests because the tests are there it was actually that it wasn't present and I thought oh maybe there's you know there's some sort of immunity they've had so many viral epidemics mm. I was hopeful for that but then it's it, it's resurged and it's it you know they're having the waves like Um, we all are experiencing. But like you said, they don't have vaccine access. So there's, I think, 2,400, over 2,400 people, but that's like less than 0.1% of the population that has been fully vaccinated. Um, So they they don't, they just don't have the vaccines. Now, there's vaccine hesitancy um, in Haiti as well, to be fair. So, you know, concerns about the healthcare, trust in the healthcare system, um, concerns about the vaccines and the you know speed with with which they were developed, um, but I think I think really it's it just comes down to no there's just not enough.
1: Mm-hmm. In the- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a sem- similar story in in places in Africa.
2: Very much so, yeah. yeah. Very much so there's there's a lack, and then some of that is coming from. So they were getting vaccines in Kenya from India, um, and then with India's surge. Mm-hmm. They are no longer getting the vaccines. So, um, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Truly, a global community.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if we exported vaccine hesitancy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody can do a study on that. I, I mean, I think Katie, though, like places in the global south that have been like hit on, right? Like, have valid fears and concerns. Um, but then, at the same time, we probably have exported some disinformation and. You know, so. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, it's challenging. I know, friends. Yes, yeah. Um. Well, we would love to talk to you for all afternoon, but we know that we are busy, and we've talked in our last podcast. This is the final throws of summer, so um, I'm sure you're you're getting ready as well for uh, fall. So um, we really wanna thank you for your time and your insights today. This was like a fun one that was a little bit out of our wheelhouse, but I think we had a good conversation. Um, so thanks again for joining us.
2: Yeah, no, and I, I do appreciate that you were interested in talking about Haiti and um, you know the circumstances there. So thanks for the invitation and
0: the opportunity. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Individual Sick Populations. We also want to remind folks that our annual meeting themed Racism, Power, and Justice Achieving Population Health Equity is coming up pretty soon here in October, 18th through 19th in person at the Baltimore Renaissance Harbor Place Hotel. You can find more information at IPHS.org forward slash conference. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.